Well, good afternoon, Redeemer. If I have not yet had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Chris Lejeune, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. As you may have noticed from the passage that Marilyn just read for us, it's very much a continuation of what we were looking at last week, almost like a, a part two as we consider Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. We touched on a few things last week, and, and this week we will go back and forth a bit as we seek to try gain a greater understanding of this interaction that has taken place and the significance of what is happening. If you haven't yet had the chance, I would encourage you to, to go back and, and listen to last week's sermon. In fact, I'd encourage you to listen to all the sermons that have uh, been preached so far in this amazing gospel account that we are considering at this time. Before we jump into today's passage, let's pray together. Father God, we marvel at your word. We marvel at these incredible truths that you have given us the way that you have revealed yourself to us. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do that even now. Open our eyes to see you. Open our, our hearts to respond to you. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, we all have favorites, right? Something that when it comes down to it is the thing that we're always going to choose. It might be a favorite sports team, it might be a favorite book, it could even be a favorite drink or a favorite meal. It's our favorite because somehow it's, it's potentially had an impact on our lives. I mean, for me, when it comes to food and drink, I will say that my favorite drink is coffee. Love coffee. I also enjoy good food. I really enjoy good food. My favorite food, one of my favorite foods, I should say, is seafood. I, I love seafood. I can eat all kinds of seafood. But I really, really love hamburgers. Now, don't get me wrong. I do always enjoy a really good biryani or a really good pancit. But I'm constantly on the hunt for the best burger in the UAE. In fact, myself and at least one senior pastor of this church, who will remain unnamed for now, have done extensive research into some of the best burgers that this country has to offer. And it isn't something that we take lightly, oh no. We have very specific criteria that a burger needs to meet in order to make our list. What's the quality of the meat like? How good is the bun? How good is the sauce? Does it complement or does it take away from the burger experience? What about the lettuce? What about the onion? What about the pickle? What about the tomato? Do they all come together to create this harmonious, life-changing experience? For those of you who may be interested, right now I can say that the burger that holds top spot is Shake Shack. I'm just looking over just to see if that is confirmed. If we're still on the same page, I'm getting nods. That's good. There have been some that have come close, 
but Shake Shack has held the top spot for the last five or six years. Now, granted, I was out of the country for three of those years, so not a lot of experimentation and research has been able to, to take place. But here's the point. Why, why am I telling you this? Why am I seeking to give you this valuable information? It's because I want you to experience the same joy, the same excitement I get from this burger. Our joy and the satisfaction from taking that first bite, the way the, the, the meat has been cooked, the perfect crispiness of it, the way the bun and the toppings all come together, it's simply amazing. The only thing that matches it is the second bite. But the hunt still continues, still in search for the best burger. And when we find one that knocks off this current champion, believe me, friends, we will let you know. So what's my point in all of this? Well, it's this. When you find or receive or experience something that is amazing, something that is life-changing, you want others to know about it. You don't want to keep it to yourself. You want others to experience what you have experienced. And that's exactly where our text starts off this afternoon. Now, if you remember, we left off last week with Jesus declaring to the Samaritan woman that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. If you look back at verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, Jesus had been engaging with this woman and slowly revealing this truth about who he was after he had revealed a very important truth about who she was. And it culminates with this glorious declaration that he is the coming Messiah. And it's at this very moment that his disciples come back after having gone into the town to get some food. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Now, in many ways, the, the, the surprise of the disciples makes perfect sense. Rabbinic writings taught that one does not simply speak to a woman in the street. It was suggested that one does not even speak to their own wife outside of the home. One would never speak to a complete stranger. It was the custom of the time. They wouldn't want to give way to gossip. And then, of course, they were also in Samaria. We touched on this last week. In many ways, the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. They hated each other. It was a hatred that, that ran deep. At times, it even led to bloodshed. It would be like the... The, the kind of rivalry or the, the tension between two rival gangs or, or many of the, the tribes and, and fighting that we see going on in places uh, in, in Africa, some of the things we see in the Middle East and Asia. And even the fact that Jesus' disciples went into the town to get food was a risky experience. Jewish travelers weren't always welcomed in the towns of Samaria. So for them to see Jesus interacting with this woman would have been a complete shock. But even so, none of them dared interrupt this conversation. However, the Samaritan woman 
perhaps aware of the disciples' presence and, and, and what they might be thinking or, the, or their shock and attitude at the situation. She just leaves her water jar and makes her way back to town. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, this is amazing on quite a few levels. Remember, this woman was at the well at a very unusual time of the day because as we saw last week, her life was, was a life of sin, a life of shame, and even a life of suffering. She had had five husbands, and the, person, the, the man she was with at this moment wasn't her husband. And, and this is what Jesus has pointed out to her. It's very likely that this woman would have kept to herself. She wouldn't have sought to engage with people in the town. And very likely the people in the town wouldn't have been very warm and engaging to, the, to her. No one would have been wanting to invite her in for a meal. In all likelihood, they would have shunned her. And yet, what does she do? She goes into town, not fearing what people would think of her, and starts telling people about Jesus. Come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? All the fear that she might have of what people might think about her, what the attitude might be towards her, it seemingly disappears as she proclaims Christ. Even the fact that she left her water jar behind is significant. It could be because she, she was intending to return, but what stands out is that what before had been her most pressing need, her most important thing that she needed, is now seemingly forgotten. It wasn't a case of, well, this is awesome. Let me just take my jar back home, go put the kettle on, and then I'll go and tell some people about some stuff. No, she left it. The sense of urgency that she has is simply beautiful. The desire to share Christ with others is amazing. And perhaps, perhaps should force us to look at ourselves and ask the question, does Christ does the gospel still have the same effect on me? What was it like when you first became a Christian? When the truth of your sin and how it separates you from God became as clear as day? What was it like for you when you realized that the penalty that you deserved, Christ took on himself? When that became front and center, what was it like when you realized that your hope was in what Christ has done for you and you put your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross? Do you remember the joy that filled your heart? Do you remember the moment when you were born again? When you were raised from death to life? When your life was changed forever? What happened? Did, did you want to keep it to yourself? Did you just want to enjoy your own personal salvation party? No, you wanted to go out. You wanted to proclaim this. You wanted to tell everyone, anyone who would listen, even those who wouldn't listen. The point is you wanted everyone to know about this. You wanted everyone to experience the same transformative power that you had experienced. And you wanted everyone's life to be impacted by this incredible truth, just as yours had been. But for any of us who have perhaps been Christians for a while, 
if we are honest with ourselves, that, that joy and, and boldness slowly disappeared. Now, friends, I'm not in any way trying to say this to, to condemn anyone. I think that's something that all of us have experienced at, at, at one point or another. I know that I've gone through seasons where, where I have felt, felt fearful at the prospect of, of sharing the gospel with someone. I've felt inadequate at times, or sometimes even downright indifferent to telling others about Christ. I come up with excuses why I can't. It's just not the right time. The setting just isn't right. I want to I build a relationship with this person first. I want to build trust with this person first. But the reality is it's none of these. I have in those very moments lost sight of who Christ is, of what he has done for me. Other things have taken center stage. Other things have gripped my affections more than Jesus, more than the gospel. Sometimes even good things like ministry, but Christ has not been central. So what's the solution to this? Well, we need to come back to Christ. We need to be reminded of the gospel. As Pastor Tim Keller says, the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to the Z of the Christian life. Meaning every aspect of our life is to be tied up in the gospel. You never graduate from the gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. So where do we start? Well, for one, we go to God's word. We study the scriptures. We read the way that God has revealed himself to us through his word. We're reminded of who he is, of what he has done. We don't do that by ourselves. This is why it's so important to be part of the local church. We come together. We do this together. We come alongside one another. We encourage each other, remind each other of God's faithfulness through his word, remind each other of God's faithfulness in our lives and of the hope that is in Christ and the gospel. And friends, we spur one another on. I want to encourage each of us, especially those of us who are members of this church, let the gospel be front and center. This is part of what it means to be a member of this local church. And friend, if, if you're sitting here, if you're watching at home and you're not yet a member, I want to encourage you not to remain on the sidelines. Join the church. Our next membership class is due to happen uh, in the early fall. Keep an ear out for it. We'll announce it. We would love to be, for you to be a part of that and, and to be a part of this church community. But until then, if you have any questions about membership, about what it means or what it looks like, please feel free to come and talk to me. Come and talk to any one of the elders. Even come and talk to any one of the church members here today. Friends, get connected. Get plugged in. The thing is, friends, we can never downplay the impact, the daily impact the gospel is to have in our lives. Following the death of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in March 1981, his daughter, Lady Elizabeth Catherwood, was asked what the biggest influence what the, the, the greatest contributing factor was to her father's life and ministry. Now, this is a man that God used incredibly throughout the 20th century. Often he's referred to as one of, if not the greatest preacher, 
theologian of the 20th century. And her reply was very simple, but very profound. He never got over the fact that Christ died for him. He never got over the gospel. This same gospel that impacted Martin Lloyd-Jones's life, the same gospel that has transformed our lives, the same gospel, this truth of Christ that has impacted this woman to such an extent that she did the unthinkable. Friends, as we will see in the rest of our passage, this same gospel will have far-reaching impact. Let's continue. Look with me at verse 31 and following. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Having returned from their their, their trip into town, The disciples now approached Jesus to to finally fulfill their mission of bringing him something to eat, knowing that, you know, he's wearied. I mean, this is the reason why he stayed behind by the well when they went to town, that they tried to give him some food. And then rather doing what they expected and taking some of the food, Jesus says he already has food to eat. Food that they are unaware of. And the this response is, is met with confusion. They turn to one another, trying to discern who was it that gave Jesus food. I mean, you could imagine it, it's somewhat comical. Perhaps James and John looking at each other with suspicion. Was it you? Did you do it? No, no, did you do it? Or maybe Peter just standing back and, and looking. I bet it was Andrew, wasn't it? He did it behind our backs. Perhaps even thinking maybe that it was this woman who gave him something to eat. But Jesus doesn't let it go much further and tells him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He is telling his disciples, if you want to know what truly satisfies, what the most important thing is, it's this. And this statement just really sums up Christ's purpose for coming to earth. He not only says it here, but he repeats a similar thing in John chapter 6, verse 38, where he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, he makes similar statements in John chapter 9, verse 4, and John chapter 17, verse 4. I mean, it's just so amazing to, to, to think about this scenario, to think about what is going on. You have this woman coming to the, to, to the world to draw water, to, to satisfy this great need. You have his disciples coming with, with food to satisfy another great need. These two great needs that every person on earth needs, food and water. And yet Jesus is saying that what truly satisfies, not what you've been going out to fetch, but what truly satisfies as worried and as tired as he may be, is to do the will of the Father and accomplish his work. Friends, is that what truly satisfies you? I fear that perhaps nowadays we are all too easily satisfied. We find joy in so many other areas of life, but not in what is most important. We don't need to spend too much time considering this point at the moment, but I want to encourage you 
Ask yourself the question, am I too easily satisfied with the things of this world? And what would it look like to be satisfied with the things of heaven? As we see, Jesus doesn't just dwell on the statement. He doesn't press it any further. He just turns to his disciple and kind of casts their attention to this time of harvest. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, normally the time from when sowing took place in the fall to the time of harvest was around six months. It was usually around, around six months. And four months would have been the very last time that you would have sowed your seed in order to reap later that year. Now, I think, you know, this is something that Jesus is doing intentionally. He's not trying to draw their attention to, to some agricultural practices. No, what he's saying has nothing to do with that. Rather, as we will see in just a bit, he's drawing their attention. He's, he's causing his disciples to look at something far greater, at something far bigger, at the imminent gospel harvest of the Samaritans. He says to them, look up, look, look, lift up your eyes. Perhaps even drawing their attention to this multitude of people who are heading their way. He's urging them to take note at the significance of what is about to take place. As he draws their attention to what is coming, he continues with this metaphor. Verse 36, already the one who reaps it is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, this is quite remarkable, this statement. I mean, firstly, Jesus points out the joy at the coming harvest, the joy of seeing people come to faith, of seeing people turn from their sin and being born again. Friends, do you rejoice? Do you celebrate when someone comes to faith? I mean, Jesus tells us in Luke's gospel account, Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. A few verses later, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, when, when you repented, when you turned to Christ, this was the response in heaven. There was rejoicing. There was great joy when you reflect on what it means that you have been saved. Does that fill you with joy? Something that we need to see here, something that's really important, something that we have seen in our passage, that nothing that has gone on in, in the verses we looked at last week and the verses that we're looking at now, in fact, all of this gospel account Nothing has happened by chance. Nothing has happened by coincidence. There were three routes that Jesus and his disciples could have taken from Judea to Galilee. It was not by chance that the time they happened to find themselves at the well was the time that this woman would arrive. 
You see, everything, as I said, that happened in this gospel that we looked at is extremely intentional. You sitting here today is intentional. You sitting at home is intentional. God has chosen that this is what would happen. Christian, you coming to faith is intentional. God is active. He doesn't leave things to chance. He is intentional in pursuing you. He is intentional in drawing you to himself. He is intentional in bringing you face to face with the seriousness and the weight of your sin. And he, he is intentional in you responding to the gospel message. And when you do, friends, there is reason for great rejoicing. Not for your glory, not for your name, but for his glory. And it doesn't end there. We look at verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. It's not certain who the others were that Jesus is referring to. It could be the Old Testament prophets. It could be John the Baptist. But we know that the Samaritans in this case were aware of the coming Messiah. The disciples themselves, while for now were to experience the, the, the reaping of the Samaritan harvest, as it were, they were now also entering into this work, the work of sowing or proclaiming the gospel. And as Christians, we share in this joy as we enter into the same labor. It is joyful. The task of proclaiming the gospel, of making disciples, is not just designated for a select few. Each and every one of us has been tasked with making disciples. Each and every one of us has been tasked with proclaiming the gospel. We may not see fruit. You may not have the opportunity to reap what you sow. But that shouldn't stop us from sowing. That shouldn't stop us from, from proclaiming and telling people about Christ. I mean, that's very much the case for us here in the UAE, for those of us who are in ministry. We aren't in any way pioneers. There have been many over the centuries that have come here that have laid a foundation, that have been sowing, and we have the joy now of those who have labored to enter into that labor and to see some of that harvest we benefit on that, not for our glory, not that we can say, look how great Redeemer Church is, but that we can stop and say, look how amazing our God is. Friends, rather than deter us, that should spur us on all the more to be faithful and boldly proclaim this Jesus Christ and his gospel. We don't know how God will use it, but we can be certain that he will do so for his glory. As Jesus finishes teaching his disciples, this, this mass of Samaritans arrive. This woman that Jesus encountered at the well has been bold in proclaiming Christ. And it's clearly made an impact on these people. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. The response of this people is amazing. They don't just believe, but it seems that a large portion of this town have now made their way to come and see Jesus. 
Now, while amazing as it is to, to see this, this multitude, uh, it's not always what we see today, and, and we need to be reminded that God can and has in the past done these incredible works of the Spirit where many have come to faith. And we do, we pray that many would come to faith on a large scale, especially where we are today. But remember, heaven rejoices over just one sinner who repents. And I do think that we should take note of this woman's testimony. It had much to do with their response. She believed. She responded to Christ and told others. It reminds us that we cannot proclaim, we cannot joyfully or with confidence proclaim what it is that we do not believe. We can't tell others of the, the joy that is in Christ, of what it means to follow him, follow him if we're not doing that ourselves. As, as a Christian sitting here today, as someone who, who potentially has opportunities and, and as we're looking, is, is commissioned to go out and, and, and tell the gospel, friends, are you believing what it is that you're preaching? As I said, the response of this people is tremendous. And they come to Jesus and they actually, they want him to stay with them for, for two days. Friends, we cannot underestimate the magnitude of this. Remember, these two people groups are sworn enemies. I mentioned this earlier, but there were times when this tension ended up in bloodshed. But none of this seems to matter. You see what the gospel does. It breaks down barriers. It destroys all walls that have been put up and unites us with Christ at the center. It serves as a reminder that there is no one who is beyond the reaches of the gospel. The disciples may have thought that the, the, the Samaritans were the last people who would ever have an opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God. And yet, look at what we see. They want Jesus. These Samaritans want Jesus, this Jewish man, this Jewish teacher, to come and stay with them, to be in their presence. We see the gospel give hope to those who perhaps others would consider hopeless. Friends, there may be people in your life who you feel are beyond hope, who perhaps even because they're from a different background or, or culture, you feel are maybe too far gone. But friends, no one is beyond the reach of our Heavenly Father. You may be sitting here today or perhaps watching at home and you're thinking that you have no hope to be saved. Maybe it's because of the family and the family tradition or the family religion that you come from or because you're from a specific people group that this faith isn't for you or that it's, just, it's beyond you. Or perhaps you're thinking that your sin is just too great, that you don't know what I've done. There's no ways God could ever forgive me of the horrible things that I have done to others. Friends, if that's you, I want to encourage you. Look at what the Samaritans say about Jesus. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, it's not about what you need to do. The work of salvation does not rest on your shoulders. Christ is the Savior of the world, not you. Christ is the one who came to earth, fully God and fully man. Christ is the one who lived a perfect sinless life, not you. Christ is the one who went and offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice on your behalf, not you. 
Christ is the one who is raised three days later and is now seated at the right hand of God. Christ is the one who has done it for you. So that all those who would trust in him would be raised to new life on the last day. Friends, turn to him. Trust in him. He is the savior of the world. He said it back in verse 26 when he says, I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans have proclaimed it. Redeemer Church, do you believe it? Have you experienced him? Have you experienced true forgiveness, true joy? Friends, if you have, then then let us be a people who boldly go out, who joyfully proclaim this message, who point people to the hope that is in Christ. This news is far greater than the best burger out there, I promise you. If you have believed, if you have been raised again, if your life has been completely transformed, don't waste it. Why would you want to keep this to yourself? Our text this afternoon ends off with Jesus after two days departing to Galilee where he's welcomed because of the miracles that many witnessed during the Passover. Our text tells us that after two days he departed for Galilee for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had gone to the feast. Uh, the gospel writer John gives us a strong contrast between the Galileans, Jesus' people, who should have received him as a savior, but displayed a false faith based more on the miracles Jesus did and ultimately would reject him. And he contrasts that with the Samaritans, the very people who should have rejected him, the very people who should have potentially even killed him, yet they are the ones who welcome him. They are the ones who rightly proclaim Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Friends, as we've seen this experience of the Samaritans, there is only one true, genuine, life-changing experience. The one that leads to eternal life. This is what the Samaritans experienced. This is what the Samaritan woman went and told to everyone. The question for us to ask today as, as we walk away from, from our time together, if we have experienced this gift, if we have been raised from death to life, if you have been given the gift of eternal life that Christ himself has won for you, what are we doing with it? Let's pray. Father God, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at your mercy. Lord, we marvel that you would send your son to take the punishment on our behalf, that you would send your son to take the place of, of sinners who have rejected you, of those who've rebelled against you, And yet, Lord, you you poured all that wrath, you put all that judgment, all that anger out on Christ. Father, I pray that this, this truth of the gospel message, this glorious 
good news would, would be fresh in our hearts today, that we would not be tired of it, that we would not be bored of it, but Lord, that you would renew in us a, a desired uh, heart to go and proclaim this good news, that you would fill us with your spirit to go out and boldly point people to the hope that is in Christ. Lord, may we be known as a people who, who fear you and not man. Who, who are ready to, to hold out this truth, to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, not so that we could make a name for ourselves, but that you would ultimately be glorified. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've seen today. Lord, may we be mindful always that you are a good, loving Father that you have given us the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus, your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.